0: Well, good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, It's a delight to see so many people here on this horrible Greek afternoon in what should be our spring. Um, I'm Susan Manning. I'm the Grierson Professor of English Literature and the Director of the Institute for Advanced Studies in the Humanities, and I'm also a member of the Gifford uh, uh, Lectureship Committee. Uh, It's very much my pleasure uh, this afternoon to welcome you to the third Gifford Lecture in this series of six, entitled Silence in Christian History, the Witness of Holmes's dog, uh, and we're welcoming again Professor McCulloch. This lecture this evening will, as the previous lectures, be recorded, and I've been asked to say that the first two lectures are now up on YouTube. Uh, They will be up on the Gifford uh, website uh, for you to download uh, in a short while. And I now have great pleasure in handing you over directly to Professor Dermot (laughs) McCulloch.
1: Thank you very much. We are moving on now from uh, where we ended, sometime in the sort of fifth-ish century, and we're going to cover a thousand years today. Uh, I'm, I, let's call this session not exactly four weddings and a funeral, but two Reformation[s] and a schism. <laughs> uh, we will not get to the third Reformation, which I'll deal with on uh, Monday, which is the sixteenth-century one, but two earlier ones, as we'll see. My last lecture ended as that great mystic Evagrius of Pontus, Evagrius Ponticus, began to lose his respectability among imperial Christians during the fifth century. Soon, the memory of Evagrius was so tarnished that it faded from consciousness among Mediterranean Christians. But not everywhere. Two centuries later, far to the east of the Roman Empire, A 7th century Syrian admirer of Evagrius called Isaac, Bishop of Nineveh, no less, addressed the same concerns in a Christian world which had moved virtually beyond the consciousness of the Orthodox and Catholic churches of the Mediterranean and Europe. And those non-imperial Christians still honored Evagrius. Uh, What had happened? Why had this split happened in the church? Isaac was prelate and monk in the Church of the East, Diophysite Church. In other words, it had rejected a view of uh, Christology, the natures of Christ, which had been steamrolled through a council of the church in 451 for the imperial Christianity of the day. Christian history can't really be understood without appreciating the significance of the Council of Chalcedon of 451. Conventionally, it has been presented in the history of the church as a great triumph, the sort of culmination of the early church's history when the natures of Christ were sorted out for one and good for for all all time. In fact, Chalcedon was a disaster, a catastrophe. Afterwards, Christianity was split into three because two-thirds of the Christian world refused to sign up to the Council's compromise decisions on the nature of Christ, dictated by the then Emperor, Marcion, or more precisely by his wife, Pulcheria, a lady with whom it was not wise to mess. The Imperial Church accepted the decisions of Chalcedon, which means that Protestants, Catholics, and Orthodox are Chalcedonian Christians. But on either side of this compromise, on opposite poles, were those who rejected the Chalcedonian via media. On one side, miaphysite Christians, who emphasized the union of the two natures of Christ, human and divine, uh, called by their their snooty enemies, monophysites. And on the other side, uh, those who emphasized the continuing distinction of these two natures in Christ, who, again, I'll give a jargon term to diophysites, and their snooty enemies call them Nestorians. And it, because of the snootiness of those labels, I'm not going to use them. So uh, I, I hate jargon, but we're going to have to use it. Miaphysites on the one side, diophysites on the other. Remember, one and two makes it easy. Isaac, Isaac of Nineveh, a diophysite, a member of the Church of the East. Obviously, he was not going to show any respect for any condemnation by the imperial church. And so for him, Evagrius remained a hero and he gnawed away at Evagrius's ideas on the process of meditation to contemplation, that distinction with which we ended last time. Pure prayer as he talked about it. Isaac said, intensity of stirrings in prayer is not an exalted part of pure prayer. It only belongs to the second or third rank What is is the most precious and the principal characteristic in pure prayer is the brevity and smallness of any stirrings. The fact that the mind simply gazes in wonder during this diminution of active prayer. So you see that way in which active meditation moves to passive contemplation, the essence of the mystical experience. Uh, And yet, Isaac has moved beyond his hero, Evagrius. He's marking out pure prayer, even pure prayer, as having levels in that quotation which I've just given you. And even pure prayer, as he goes on, is seen as second uh, in what might be seen as three stages of mystical consciousness in the mind. And in the end, all is annihilation, all prayer has gone. As he says, as long as prayer is stirred, it belongs to the sphere of the soul's existence. But when it has entered that other sphere, the spirit, then prayer stops. And that is the final state. And he uses an old Syrian term, wonder, to describe that situation. So that's where the Diophysite Church of the East took the thought of Evagrius by the seventh century. Let's think about the other wing. Because there, there was another uh, mystic, a Syrian, too, who was destined to have a very different uh, career, as you might say, in mysticism. Because his thought would, as we'll see, end up in the West, as well as the East. And he achieved this extraordinarily long-lived success and influence by hiding his name, hiding his name behind a much more ancient Christian In fact, a convert of Paul of Tarsus, as described in the Book of Acts, in the largely unreceptive city of Athens, a man called Dionysius, Dionysius the Areopagite. And no one has ever discovered the real name of this Syrian. He has remained Dionysius the Areopagite. It was already being deliberately obscured in his own day by other writers, sort of conspiracy of silence around him. So I'm afraid we're going to have to call him Pseudo-Dionysius the Areopagite. I'm going to miss off the Areopagite from time to time, you'll be glad to hear. Now it was politic for him to do this because he was a miaphysite. In other words, on the the polar opposite wing on the anti-Chalcedonian spectrum, either side of uh, the Chalcedonian solution, the polar opposite to Isaac of Nineveh. Now, just as much as his contemporaries who were not Christians, like the philosopher Damascus, who I mentioned last time, he was an exponent of negative theology, the view that you cannot say anything about God ultimately. The ultimate essence of divinity cannot be described. So in his mystical theology, chapter 5, there is a hymn which contains one of the most formidable lists ever to be created in the early centuries of the church of what God is not. So this is a hymn of negativity. Here's just a bit of it, just a bit. Ascending still higher, we say that it is not soul, not intellect, not imagination, opinion, reason, and not intellection, not life, not being, not eternity, not time, not divinity, not goodness. God has hidden himself behind all these things. Now, how could he say these things? Well, remember that he is a miaphysite. That is why he is being so boldly negative. His view of the second person of the Trinity, the Son, has a vision of the humanity of Jesus so profoundly swallowed up in the divinity that no other vision of the divine is necessary than Jesus. There is nothing that you need to say about the divinity beyond it. All you have is Jesus. That's what a miaphysite theology can do. His negatives of God follow on from his rejection of the Council of Chalcedon. And yet those negatives left much to say, strange novelties made palatable by that wonderfully pseudonymous identity going back to the first century. His readers really thought that he was Paul of Tarsus' convert in Athens. And what he did was to be fascinated as much as any Gnostic or Neoplatonist, by hierarchies, celestial hierarchies, hierarchies in the heaven. In fact, it seems to have been pseudo-Dionysius who invented the word hierarchy in Greek. No other earlier usage of it. In other words, a layered procession of beings from high to low, which constructed, kept the deity well away from us. Those layers were the barrier to the nothingness which lies beyond. Angels. And Pseudo Dionysius enrolled these angels in a Platonic procession of procession, return, descent, ascent which Gnostics would have found perfectly familiar, although they would have given them other names and attributed them to other powers. So he dragooned the angels into hierarchies. Angels, archangels, powers, thrones. And that was an essential element in his success. It appealed to a society which looked like that in everyday life. It was hierarchical. And it appealed to clergy especially. Because Dionysius put uh, parallels between each order of clergy and each order of angels. Clergy suddenly found out that they were angels, angels on earth. Now, that wasn't simply an ego boost to the clergy because it brought frightening responsibilities. They had to be as good as angels, as good as angels and hence Dionysius in every age appealed to church reformers who wanted to make the church better. That was one of the reasons for his appeal right up to the Protestant Reformation of the 16th century and beyond. So he appealed to both east and west. He would arrive in the west as we'll see in the 9th century and all these people in the Orthodox Church, the Catholic Church would have been appalled if they had realized he was actually a miaphysite. His arrival in the West was delayed from the fifth to the ninth century. And during that time, the Western Church really didn't have much of a contemplative tradition. And that was because of its greatest theologian, Augustine of Hippo, the greatest, do- the doyen of Latin West theologians. The theme of silence did not preoccupy Augustine. It played very badly alongside his fascination with language, with human psychology. They were the revelations of the nature of God for Augustine, not anything else. One exception, of course, which you'll mostly be very familiar with, I guess, is in Augustine's Confessions, that scene in the garden at Ostia, as he and his mother Monica are trying to take ship for home. They they discuss uh, the divinity. And just a few days before Monica died, They had together reached out in their conversation in thought, and they had touched the eternal wisdom. But it was for one moment only, and it was the end result of a loving conversation and thought discussion between mother and son. And that was it. There was nothing else uh, to bring Augustine close to that state of the eternal. And yet, Augustine was a Neoplatonist as much as uh, Pseudo-Dionysius. But his Platonism had taken him in a very different direction because of his overwhelming sense of humanity's sinful helplessness, its alienation from God. He was not going to go down the sorts of roads that we have seen Neoplatonists go in the East. Instead, he saw a rescue route for humanity in words. Yes, a fragile, imperfect medium, but still offering clues to the divine realities beyond those words. And again, if you think of his confessions and the way it works, think how much, there, how much there is about books in them. At every stage as he marches towards his confession, there is another book to be scrutinized, usually rejected. And then, of course, the confession itself is all about a book. He takes up the Bible, tole lege, take up and read, and that is the moment of revelation. Books, words, fascinated him. And signs in their relation to reality fascinated him. Words in a page, what are they? They are signs pointing to a reality beyond. And that is particularly true, especially true, true above all things with the Bible, the Word of God presented to human beings. How is its message best approach? Well, remember sign and reality. The sign which you see points to a reality behind it. And it is likely, therefore, that this supreme gift of God, the Bible, is an example of that. You read the text, but that is just a series of signs. Behind it are realities, and it is your job, your task, to find what those meanings are. So Augustine would read the Bible like that, and uh, he would point to an Alexandrian theologian, who in many ways was his polar opposite, Origen, who had given him this method, the method of allegory. The, The superficial reading of the text is the least important thing you do with the Bible. You look behind it at different levels to find what it actually means. Now, before Augustine, the Western Church had actually been rather suspicious of this allegorical method of reading the Bible, but after Augustine, it became the most characteristic Western way of reading it. It became known as the divine perusal, the divine reading, Lectio Divina. And that is a way of reading the text which brings the reader closer to God than in any other way. And for a thousand years, that is how Western Christians read their Bible. The West was becoming different from the East, where there were other traditions of reading the Bible. It was now building up its own traditions, as much in monasticism as in anything else two successive formulations of a monastic rule appeared during the fifth century, the second of which bears the name of Saint Benedict, probably uh, a real human being, though we know very little about him apart from that rule. Now, these rules, of course, discussed silence, but they discussed silence in moral pastoral terms rather than mystical terms. Silence was a matter of building up communities or doing things to make those involved in it good. If you look at what Benedict says about silence, he says a lot about silence in The Rule, that the prime thing he's talking about is obedience. Obedience to the abbot from the monks, whose prime character is to be a disciple. And so Benedict says in his rule, permission to speak should rarely be granted even to perfect disciples, even though it be for good, holy, edifying conversation. The disciples' part is to be silent and listen. Now one might observe that on those criteria, Jesus' disciples would not have made very good monks. That aside... Around the silence, there were competitors in monastic life. Regulated noise, that was fine, because regulated noise was the framework of monastic life. Monks were now increasingly expected to read books as a matter of course, which they had not been to start with, particularly in the East. And some, at least, of that industry of reading was performed aloud. So there was a constant danger of hearing one of your fellow monks reading. That's a problem. The sound of bells was a constant, too, announcing the further noise of human voices gathered to perform the liturgical round in due form. Now here, a clue had been given by another Western uh, theologian, known very well to Augustine, his mentor, uh, Ambrose of Milan, one of the first great aristocrat administrators to turn Christian bishop. Uh, Ambrose had contributed an important reflection on the increasingly elaborate public performance of the liturgy in the West. He observed that when a psalm is read, it is itself the instrument of silence for the one who reads. Everyone speaks and no one interrupts with a clamor. Now, in Ambrose's time, probably that would have referred to a single cantor, uh, reciting the psalms to a silent congregation. But his his words took a different meaning on by the 8th century, when uh, a major liturgical shift had taken place in Western monasteries. Now the entire community sang the psalms in monasteries, and that combined noise still fulfilled Ambrose's formula. It banished other noise from the church and from their minds, and the principle was taken further because customarily now, monks sang the psalms as they worked in their community or out in the fields. It was an excellent way for an abbot to feel reassured that his brethren were not idly gossiping and that their thoughts were concentrated on a single task. You might compare it to the use of communal chanting on military route marching at the present day. It's the same sort of disciplinary activity. So Western monks were evolving a very specialised and Western sort of silence. That presented problems in its turn. Because by the 8th and 9th century, Western monasteries were very different from those of Benedict or his predecessor, John Cassian. And the reason for that was that the great men of Europe had endowed these monasteries with enormous wealth for very specific purposes to pray for them to stop them going to hell. And now, a monastery was like a little town. It was full of potential clamor. Lay lay servants, craftsmen, laborers, guests in a grand architectural setting. All of that supplemented by another new feature of these great Carolingian monasteries, monasteries founded by Charlemagne and his mates. Oblation, the offering of children to the monastic life for life. Families were now sending their children to monasteries. And children are, by nature, cheerful enemies of silence. <laughs> so what is to be done? There is a logistical, a logistical problem by the ninth century, but something more as well. Because it was now, in the ninth century, that the West recovered much more of the mystical dimension of silence from the East. It arrived in the form of a single manuscript of the writings of Pseudo-Dionysius, brought uh, by an embassy from Constantinople to uh, the successors of Charlemagne, and brought because they knew that the royal monastery of this peculiar Western ruler was named after a saint called Dionysius. And they hoped that there would be a creative confusion of their Dionysius with this uh, Westerner, and so it happened. The Abbot of Saint-Denis in Paris treasured uh, that manuscript and soon it was being read with enormous excitement. So one figure within this transformation in the West was that happily long dead pseudo-Dionysius. The other was a a great living abbot called Oddo, who became the second abbot of a new Benedictine monastic foundation, Cluny, in uh, 927. Now, Otto was deeply preoccupied with the idea that monasticism was in steep decline. In general, he was probably right. And he was determined to halt the slide to make Cluny a beacon of reform within the church. Uh, But this concern was particularly vivid in his mind because he was convinced that the world was coming to an end soon. By now, that numbering, uh, which used to be called Allo Domini, was in some use and the year 1000 was coming up, it was obvi- an obvious time for the world to end. And so all this reform must be done pretty quickly uh, with, for an abbot who had ascended his abatial throne in 927. And so, under Otto's rule, Cluny was launched on the path of exemplary monastic life. By the 11th century, it was Western Europe's most influential monastic community, Uh, It was behind the Crusades to a large extent. It was identified with the enormous program of ecclesiastical reform in the West during the 11th and 12th centuries. And not least in all this was its achieving a new intensity of monastic silence, which would cope with all those problems I've outlined to you. How do you turn a small town silent? Cluny was the biggest of all these monasteries, the biggest church in Europe. This was a real problem. So silence for Oddo became a way of calling his monks not just to be exemplars of holiness, but to play their part in the divine plan for the world, which he expected to end very soon. And just as Syrians long, long before him had seen asceticism as angelic, so did Oddo. The life of his monks was to be a discipline of heaven the round of worship never ending in the church in Cluny. The most elaborate worship in Europe was a deliberate reproduction of the praise of heaven, the angelic praises of heaven. And around it was a profound silence. Otto was a great admirer of Pope Gregory I, long, long dead by then. But in his Moralia, Gregory had given Otto a vital set of links to uh, explain all this. Pope Gregory had observed that it was impossible for humans in this life to apprehend the fullness of divine majesty. It would only be possible for those whom God had chosen at the end of time, and that was only 60 years away. Both Cluny's liturgy and its silence were designed to anticipate this coming state. Well, in fact, the world failed to end in 1000 A.D. But the monks of Cluny continued to dwell in a powerhouse of eschatological thought. Their sense that the world was entering its last time fueled the extraordinary bout of energy of the reformation of Gregory VII at the end of the 11th century, one of our reformations. Now, one of the most remarkable fruits of Cluny's regime of silence was its pioneering development of monastic sign language to replace the necessity for speech in everyday transactions. Strictly speaking, not a language, but a sign system because it had no syntax or grammar. But what it did do was enable work and life to proceed efficiently without speech. Actually, piquantly, its its nearest modern equivalent would have been the sign language and grimace language used by factory workers in in the Industrial Revolution, particularly Lancashire cotton mills. Uh, Older people here will remember the great comedian Les Dawson and the use which he made of this sign language in his comic sketches. But that uh, noise had its equivalent in the profound silence of Cluny, and the signs had the same thing. You are using not your ears, but your eyes. The signage uh, is there to do things, and uh, it is there to do things in three main areas of the monastery. The kitchen, the library, and the liturgy and so its signs are related to these three purposes. So the signage has a rich array of words for different types of fish, but no sign at all for meat, because monks didn't eat meat. They uh, uh, ate a lot of fish. And this sign language (coughs) regulated thought and action, rather like a benevolent version of George Orwell's Newspeak in 1984 because there were things you could not do in it. You could not gossip. You could not be malicious. At least you would have had to uh, require individual ingenuity to invent a sign for it. Novices were only taught as much of the signage as they needed to know. For instance, they didn't need to know much about the liturgy, so they weren't taught those signs. That would come later on in their career. And some of the signs would also teach them instructive lessons. For instance, the sign for angel was the same as the sign for alleluia. So that's what angels sang in heaven, just like monks in their choir. You would be reminded every time you used the sign of that foot set of thoughts strung together. Contrarywise, the sign for a secular book was derived from the gesture that a dog makes scratching its ear because those who read secular books are no better than animals. (laughs) And knowing these signs built up a common monastic identity against outsiders, a common language, a common set of signs. But it was also a comment on the fact that Cluny was the first centralized multinational corporation in European history. Many Cluniac monks would not have understood each other because they came from different language pools all (laughs) over Europe. The glory days of Cluny were over by the 13th century, and many of the new orders of the 12th century had been set up as criticisms of Cluny. Uh, the Cistercians, for instance, with their severe architecture, were, were quite deliberately, visually, criticizing the opulence of Cluny. But there, Cistercians and Cluniacs did not disagree on silence. All the Cistercians did was to borrow it uh, without much modification. Only one order went even further than Cluny and the Cistercians, the order of the Chartreux, the Carthusians, the one medieval order to make a permanent success of monastic simplicity. And their initiative is a deliberate repudiation of the Benedictine ethos. Uh, never confuse the Carthusians with the Benedictines. They don't like it. And why were they so successful? in getting beyond the Benedictines and keeping away that temptation to slackness, which is always the problem of monastic community life. The way they did it was by not having a community, by making all members of the monastery hermits, living, yes, within an enclosure, meeting for worship, but otherwise not talking to each other, not seeing each other, each living in in, uh, an individual house, crucially with a garden, not just so that they could cultivate food and herbs for themselves, but because a garden was heaven. It was paradise. And so a servant with this clause certainly did make drudgery divine. The silence was all enveloping. In the days when Carthusians had servants, those servants were also forbidden to talk to each other at all times, unlike the more moderate silences of lay brothers among the Cistercians. So the Carthusians effortlessly outstripped everyone else in silence with the same eschatological theme. Only the direst emergencies interrupted their perpetual silence, and the meditation within their silence was how every careless word would be brought to account on the day of judgment. And they even rejected the Carthusian, sorry, the Cluniac sign language because it was too sophisticated. They invented their own crude system, which they said, with a, with a uh, with pr- pride behind it, it, was signa rustica. It was a language for peasants in the countryside. No sophisticated sign play on Alleluia and angels and scratching dog uh, ears for them. Behind all this was now pseudo Dionysius. We've seen how Augustine had invented a Lectio Divina, a divine perusal when reading the Bible. Now, with this intensified silence and the leeching into the west of the idea of union with God via pseudo-Dionysius, there was a much more intense use of the Bible. You can glimpse it in the writings of one Carthusian, Gigo, writing in the 12th century, wrote a brief guide to spirituality, the ladder, the ladder of Monks, a title which he'd actually directly borrowed from a much older Egyptian work, The Ladder of John Climacus, John the Laddermaker. And in this, you see an ascent on your ladder from reading, to meditation, to prayer, to contemplation. So it's that classic Evagrian progression. Uh, He had been anticipated this by uh, an Augustinian canon of the previous generation, Hugh of of St. Victor. But Aguigo's language is extraordinarily edgy. He speaks of God at length in terms of a loving husband. It was not John of the Cross who invented that erotically charged language. It's it's a Carthusian in the 12th century. And all sorts of other physical languages. Jacob wrestles in the night with the angel. So does the Christian wrestle with God. (coughs) And yet it is all in the service of ascending the ladder. And it is, in a sense, to leave reading behind. So Gigo says, reading without meditation is idle. Meditation without prayer is without effect. But prayer without devotion wins contemplation. Reading is only one stage, in other words, on this road. And other readers in their monasteries took up these thoughts which might reinforce the practice of contemplation, but might not, because they pressed their engagement with the words of scripture beyond its text, to the point that they were allowing their imaginations to dwell, wander through the results of their reading as the text itself faded away. And this process was distinct enough to acquire its own separate name, no longer Lectio Divina, but Lectio Spiritualis, a perusal with the spirit. And that might end up as the exploration of feeling by an individual standing before divinity, quite an unexpected result of this leeching of Eastern thought into the West. And the end result might not so so much be contemplation, the vanishing of the soul into the ocean of the sacred, as the free flight, self-assertion of the human imagination, It was, after all, the West, which was designed to reinvent the ancient pre-Christian literary genre of the novel. Maybe its sources are within this Lectio Spiritualis. Well, in generous mood, Benedictines and Cluniacs realized that they'd been outgunned by the Carthusians. So, Peter of Cell, a Benedictine abbot, became bishop of Chartres, said in the 12th century in praise of the order of the Chartres, mouths have they and speak not. You'll realize that that's a quotation from Psalm 115. And of course it didn't start life as a term of praise but as a term of abuse and the sneer. But that's what you can do with Lectio Divina. It is an example of that wonderful medieval tropological genius for twisting any text of the Bible to a new and useful purpose. The product of monks whose practice of Lectio Divina was at the center of their lives and they felt they could do this. It was a mark of their self-confidence, the triumph of monastic silence in an era when Cluniacs and Cistercians could become popes. Repeatedly, you find these monks whose lies had been structured by silence, cheerfully reaching for biblical texts which had not been intended for the purpose at all. I think a particularly engaging example of this text appropriation comes from that most individually minded of of 11th century Benedictine monks, Guybert of Nogent, Abbot of Nogent at the turn of the 11th and 12th centuries. And Gibert seized on that most solemn moment of rest in the Book of Revelation, which we've already examined, the famously approximate half an hour. Now, for Gigo, this was simply a good precedent for having a little lunchtime rest from contemplation, a lapse back into divinity. And so Gibert interpreted the text, the half hours, recommending a sort of divine siesta. He said, if there is silence at midday in heaven... Our gift of contemplation cannot, while we live, remain in a state of unremitting intensity. Evagrius Ponticus or Isaac of Nineveh might have blanched at this cheerfully pragmatic Western view of how one individual mind set out on its journey towards divine perfection. Well, let's leave the West there for the time being and turn East again to the Orthodox Church because I've mentioned Gregory VII's Reformation a successful reformation from above, but it's not the first reformation in Christian history. That occurred in the East, and it was, in fact, in the end, unsuccessful. It was the iconoclastic movement in the Byzantine Empire, the movement for smashing images. Now, generally, the iconoclastic controversy is uh, is is narrated as an effort to interrupt the preordained course of orthodox history, So the iconoclast defeat came in 843 with the triumph of orthodoxy, and that was a logical end for this diversion from the orthodox way forward. Now, the reality was not quite like that, and it's worth asking what the real issue was in the iconoclastic controversy. What was the theology which, in the end, brought triumph for those who defended icons? But it was all started by destroying visual representations of God in church and representations of God in, in the street, on the palace for instance. Uh, not art generally. The iconoclasts were not opposed to art, emphatically not. They were particularly fixated on the cross, which you see in their surviving churches. And there's lots of vegetable decoration, abstract motifs. And that may put you in mind of another culture, which also had lots of vegetable abstract motifs in its decoration. 16th century reformed Protestants, iconoclasts to a man, gratefully seized on this controversy as an heroic precedent for what they were doing in 16th century Europe. But they were at least in part mistaken, if only they'd known. Inevitably, those 16th century Protestants lacked historical perspective on the 8th and 9th centuries. And what they couldn't see uh, was that iconoclasm was a rational response to the success of iconophobic Islam. Islam seemed to be winning God's favor. Why should that be? Well, one good reason was that it didn't like images and the Byzantine Empire had lots of them, so let's get rid of them. It's no coincidence that iconoclasm was supported and initiated, in fact, by emperors who were some of the most competent military leaders in Byzantine history. They were being practical. But there was also an internal Christian dynamic to this clash. What we're seeing in the iconoclastic controversy is an argument about how Christians reach out to God's holiness. Do you do that primarily through the liturgy of the church. Now, the iconoclasts said, yes, it is in church. It is in the liturgy that you meet God. And so they were thus affirming one way in which Byzantine Christianity had been developing in the previous three centuries. The liturgical performance of Byzantium centered on one great church, Hagia Sophia in Constantinople. What they did there was the benchmark for what should happen through the rest of the uh, Byzantine world. In other words, the iconoclasts' vision of worship was that it primarily consisted of what clergy did in churches with the full grandeur of developed choral music to back it. But they had little else to offer once the liturgy was out of the way. For those for whom the liturgy had become too professionalized, too remote, to satisfy every spiritual need. Reformed Protestants, in other words, in other words, would have found them very uneasy bedfellows indeed. Now the iconophiles, those who liked icons, shared the love of the liturgy of the iconoclasts, but they offered alternative routes to the divine as well. <laughs> as well. They maintain that we don't necessarily need the blessing of a clergyman to make something holy. Everyone can freely encounter the sacred because all that God has created is by nature sacred. And icons in particular are available to all the people of God and not necessarily in church. They have a power in and of themselves. This was not a power of the Holy Ghost called down by a priest, such as took place in the Eucharist. Anyone could contemplate an icon and meet the Holy Spirit. Lay folk, monks, nuns, as well as priests. Now this concept of a power-charged contemplation of icons, now developing amid the controversy, was like nothing in the earlier history of the church. It did not have much precedent. Iconophiles were envisaging a stretching out of humanity in union with divinity, a theosis of sacramental significance. And that is why iconoclasts detested images so much. They felt that icons had attracted a new, unprecedented, unwarranted cultus, and that that was as blasphemous and unchristian as the worship of idols. Now, in terms terms of the first two centuries of the Christian world, they were probably right. Iconoclasts were right. And powerful voices had gone on making that case in the centuries before the iconoclast iconoclast controversy broke out. But now the iconoclasts were being left behind. So one way of reading this controversy is that it was a contest between the monopoly claims of holy noise in the form of the liturgy of the Byzantine Church and the obstinately dissident and democratic voice of contemplative silence. Now, by no means all monasteries or nunneries had backed the iconophiles, but monks and nuns who loved icons and used them as the object of their contemplation allied with a popular movement rooted among laypeople to save images from the consequences of high clericalism and imperial policy. That became both the strength and the salvation of the icon through the years in which the emperors tore them down in their churches. The icons took refuge in people's homes, and there it would often be mothers or grandmothers who exercised their customary domestic power to save the image. Now maybe such ordinary folk didn't have the sophistication possessed by those who read their Dionysius or Evagrius, but they knew a road to salvation when they saw one, in more senses than one. Equally, independent holy men were the defenders of icons. Ordinary people, yet extraordinary, wandering from place to place, still claiming the holiness of a monk or hermit, but owing little to the church hierarchy and its compromises with the emperor's whims. That was the importance of the wandering holy man in Eastern Orthodox Christianity. So these 8th and 9th century arguments about icons led to a decisive realignment of what was to become Orthodox Christianity. Of course, the liturgy went on in its central place in the church. Why shouldn't it? But alongside the liturgy, was a form of devotion which before the eighth century had been controversial. The use of icons in a very democratic complementarity with clerically-dominated worship in church, a partner now in the search for theosis. Now, as you'll realize, the Western church also had its ecclesiastical art. It too had a brief spasm of iconoclasm under the Emperor Charlemagne and his son, but that passed. And you might think the outcome was the same. Wall paintings and statues in Western holy places, foci of devotion and prayer, complete with their individual array of votive candles, which any lay person or cleric could light, either within or outside the liturgy. It looks rather similar, doesn't it? But the general dynamic was different. To begin with, these were not icons. In other words, they were not flat painted surfaces as the uh, You see, the Orthodox were punctiliously uh, obeying the command, thou shalt make no graven image, by having simply flat painted surfaces, no graving involved. The West did lots of graving, statues, and those statues became ever more lifelike, ever more concrete, bringing down the divine into the middle of life, just as the priest brought down God in the Eucharist into bread and wine, as the East took you upwards from normal life to heaven through the window of the icon. Eastern sacred art was steadily less concerned with the exact representation of ordinary reality because it was taking you to heaven. Art was not a means of individual human creative expression. It was an acclamation of the corporate expression and experience of the church The artist became a theologian, an interpreter of doctrine through image and story. Every sacred picture was something to be approached with meditation, an acute sense of tradition. And after the icons had returned in triumph in 843, they steadily asserted their place within the physical fabric of the church. And during the 13th to 15th centuries, that developed into a new piece of church furniture, The iconostasis, the stand for icons, now the dominant feature of an orthodox church interior, but it was not until the 13th century. Now it is there as the center of a complementary set of experiences. One of those experiences is the liturgy, led by the clergy, sung with whatever degree of solemnity that clergy, choir and people can achieve in the circumstances. But the iconostasis is the marker of many key stages in that performance of the liturgy. But it is doing something else as well, because it is there as the focus for a myriad simultaneous small individual acts of devotion, contemplation offered by the faithful in general, before icons on the icon stand or formally ranked on their own stands within the church interior. Each icon follows rules of composition built up since the sixth century to express particular theological or devotional propositions. But crucially, any of those icons could equally well be found in a humble room in any household, and it can mediate exactly the same devotion there. Martha of Bethany, let alone Mary of Bethany, can be a theologian in her own kitchen. Now, that combination has been the great strength of orthodoxy, sustaining it through trials which by most reckonings ought to have killed it off altogether. And it can't be coincidence that this first great flourishing of the iconostasis in church interiors occurred in the the century of orthodoxy, which also developed a new approach to silence. Hesychasm, that slightly daunting word, which simply means the practice of silence. The contemplation of God in hesychasm was intimately linked to the icon. It disciplined the human faculty of hearing by emphasizing silence, but it emphasized the complementary importance of sight, dwelling on the truths which icons embodied, the spiritual light which shone through them. Uh, the, The favorite icon of hesychasm is the transfiguration, when Christ's face shines with light. Mystics had always turned to the metaphor of light, but now it was much more than a metaphor. It was the vehicle for seeing and knowing God. Apart from contemplating icons, Hesychast drew on long experience among ascetics of practical physical ways to structure silent or still prayer. Appropriate physical posture, correct breathing. And one characteristic practice alongside that to exclude noise, either in the imagination or the outer world, is to repeat a single devotional phrase, the most common of which, of course, is the Jesus prayer. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, have mercy on me. Now this is also something of an innovation in orthodoxy in the 13th century or so. Of course it goes right back, but it doesn't seem to have been common at all until the coming of hesychasm. We've heard Saint Makarios, the Egyptian, affectionately comparing uh, the women of his childhood enjoying their chewing gum to the recital of the name of Jesus, but that's a way back, and it's only in the 13th, 14th century when the Jesus Prayer emerges again. And it raises the question of why the the 13th, 14th century? Why does the hesychast tradition emerge at that moment? Of course, it draws on that sort of venerable tradition in the east. But I think we need to look at context to see why it might be at that moment. A dire political situation in which the Byzantine Empire was collapsing, pushing, being pushed constantly by the Ottoman Turks. What more natural than the, in the era of the Black Death, the collapse of the world around you, that you should turn inwards to seek the light, the comfort of God. And then the Ottomans themselves, as they conquered the Byzantine Empire, were rather well disposed to this movement because it encouraged their new Christian subjects to introspection, political passivity. But there might have also been something else that the Ottomans actually brought with them, a more positive influence, the mystical movement known as Sufism. Once upon a time, we've seen Muslim iconophobia touch off a Christian iconophobia in the iconoclastic controversy. In the same way, the Sufi mystics may have stimulated the hesychast movement within Christianity. Sufism predates the uh, rise of Hesychasm by about 200 years. Uh, its final acceptance into the Islamic mainstream was uh, in the time of Al-Ghazali, uh, which is at least 200 years before hesychasm is at all prominent within uh, the Christian world. This is still a controversial matter. You can imagine the sort of political dimensions of it. But it seems to me that the chronological uh, factor is just unanswerable. Islam is there first. And not just Islam, but what lay beyond Islam. Uh, Think of traveling eastwards, as we've done already to find the roots of monasticism, and arrive at the Buddhism, the Hinduism of India and China. Because that's what ancient Christians themselves did. Now, a very different turn in the Latin Church of the West, as the East discovered hesychasm, that was not the way that the West dealt with the problems of silence. The Gregorian reform of the 11th century re- redefined boundaries which may much more fluid in orthodoxy. The boundary between clergy and laity. It drew jurisdictional power to Rome within monastic life. It encouraged new foundations, reformed orders, each with its own rule. And so the Western church became increasingly centralized, compartmentalized. Silence and contemplation were now regarded as the business not of lay folk in the world, but of all these religious orders founded precisely to make such practices central to their lives. Remember again that point about wandering ascetics. Saint Benedict had hated them. He had forbidden wandering ascetics to visit his monasteries. And they had disappeared from Western Christianity as a result. Western asceticism has classically been practiced in community or by hermits who are carefully regulated, given a fixed home, often by virtually permanent enclosure. It's an entirely different approach to ascetic life And it's all of a piece with the one peculiarity of the Western church, completely unlike that of the East. Universal, mandatory, clerical celibacy. An imposition unique in the Christian world, never instituted by any other church but the Western Latin church. The Orthodox, by contrast, institutionalized the difference between monks and parish clergy. So they made the monastic life the exclusive road to Episcopal office and strongly encouraged parish clergy to get married. In the West, of course, uh, wives and clergy were not welcome in monasteries, except perhaps here in Scotland, among the Chaldees. But otherwise, uh, they are also banned from the presbyteries, the parsonages too. And this separation of clerical from lay status, with the assumption of clerical superiority behind it, and the assumption of uh, cler- uh, superiority of celibacy over marriage, have lingered on to modern times with results which we might discuss. So individual asceticism, lay itinerant mysticism outside monastic communities flourished in the East. Similar ascetics in the West faced ambiguous and sometimes fatal reactions from the official church. In the precarious profession of being a Western mystic, there were plenty of women. Why was that? Well, one reason was the growth of universities in the West. What are universities? Imitations of Islamic centers of higher education for the same purposes as they have in the Islamic world to process all that sudden outpouring of knowledge, Aristotle, etc. That's what they're there for. But crucially, like their Islamic predecessors, they are all male institutions. That put women suddenly, quite suddenly, at a grave ed- educational disadvantage. In the days of the great Carolingian Benedictine monasteries, nunneries had as much chance as monasteries of being centers of learning. But once men dominated higher learning, embarked on the adventures of formal theology, which they invented in the 12th century, learning was not for ladies. And perhaps that's why women were now so attracted to mysticism in a male-dominated world. Because it's a mode of spirituality which ultimately is independent of any formal intellectual training. And much of this mysticism, significantly, was in the vernaculars of Europe, not in Latin, so intended for people who didn't have that international scholarly language, in other words, most women. And it's not surprising that this mysticism attracted hostile attention from the authorities. One of the, be- the most well-known mystics uh, of the 13th century, Margu- Marguerite Porette, wrote of her experiences in French, in a mirror of simple souls, burned at the stake as a heretic in 1310. A fine line was drawn and which you could step over extremely easily between such a fate and eventual honor in the church. One who stepped just the right side was the German-Dominican Meister Eckhart, who actually was an associate of Marguerite Porret in his years in France, and like her, was accused of heresy but he died in the middle of Inquisition proceedings against him. And because of that accident, his works escaped full condemnation, and he survived posthumously and had a great deal of influence. But if you read Meister Eckhart, you can see why the Inquisitors might have been suspicious. He insisted that you abstract the particular this or that to achieve what he called detachment, gelassenheit, which is apatheia. The soul can meet God in the ground of all reality, and that soul, female for Meister Eckhart, can achieve a union with the divine, inseparable union with the divine, the unplumbed death of God which has no name. It's startling against the background of Augustinian theology in the West to read in Eckhart that God begets his only begotten soul in the high, his only begotten son, sorry, his only begotten son in the highest part of the soul. God begetting his son in the highest part of the soul. Theosis, in other words. We've corralled so much of this monasticism in the cloister. Clearly, Western lay people still wanted it. One way in which uh, the church could cope would be to invite lay people to imagine themselves as monks. And so, two bestsellers of the 14th century in both England and France. Were works called the Abbey of the Holy Ghost and the Charter of the Holy Ghost. And the Abbey imagines the building of the soul as if you were building a monastery, all its parts lovingly named the cloister, the chapter house, the church, etc. Still vulnerable to attacks from sin outside the monastic walls, but it is an abbey. A work, though, explicitly aimed at lay people, whom it comfortingly assumes. I quote, would be in religion, but they may not, for poverty or awe, or for dread of their kindred, or for bond of marriage. Now that rather gives it away. Most of the readers of this work were intended to be women. And in fact, the abbey in its French original was a nunnery. So this looks like an effort to bring would-be mystics back into the church, rather than go down the dangerous road represented by Marguerite Perrette. All the time, there is the problem that clergy are seen as better than laity. One Western movement of the late 14th century did push against that assumption. The so-called present-day devotion, modern-day devotion, the devotio moderna, which developed in the Netherlands right up to the 16th century Reformation. Now, this was never a purely clerical movement. Even though it developed something like a religious order, the Brethren of the Common Life, uh, that order discouraged its members from becoming ordained clergy. They were still only uh, under a rule. And married couples and their children, of course, could also be involved in communal lifestyles inspired by the devotes here. The promise of this movement was that serious-minded laity could go beyond just building fantasy monasteries. They could be as good in their own right as any clergy. That idea summed up in the title of Thomas A. Kempis' famous treatise, The Imitation of Christ. Kempis' title really rather uneasily relates to Augustine, all those assumptions about fallen humanity. It really reaches back to pseudo-Dionysius, a solvent of the Western idea that clergy and laity are separate and that clergy have a better chance of getting to heaven. So that might have been the way forward to another future other than the Reformation that happened. Were it not, for one young Dutchman caught up in that very movement, the Devotio Moderna, Desiderius Erasmus, standard bearer for Christian humanism, but who developed the Devotio into an attitude of mind deeply subversive of the whole monastic enterprise. Remember that Erasmus was a failed monk who only belatedly got a papal dispensation for having fled his monastery. Uh, It was only when he was a celeb in later life did he get that dispensation? And he had good personal reasons for loathing and denigrating the regular life, some of which I'm sure were twinges of guilt at having left it. But his answer was to attack it. He brutally asserted that lay people in everyday society could be as holy as monks. He posed a rhetorical question. What is the state, kivitas, but a great monastery? And if you say, yes, that's what it is. The state is a great monastery. What's the point of monasteries? Because everyone in the state then becomes a monk, with the prince, incidentally, as the abbot. It is a profound reversal of nearly a millennium of Western Latin assumptions. It was, in Erasmus's presentation, a cut-down, sanitized, spirit-filled version of the spiritual life of his day, available for all, but it was to prove much more palatable among the pope's foes than in the Vatican. And it was a cerebral, non-mystical faith. Erasmus never saw the point of mysticism. He never joined those humanists who delighted in Kabbalism or any of the ancient magical variants on Plato. Of course, he took an interest in pseudo-Dionysius, But he saw through him. He saw that he was not Paul of Darsus's scholar. And it's almost comic to watch him using pseudo-Dionysius, the hierarchies of pseudo-Dionysius, to the utilitarian purpose of justifying the power of temporal rulers in society. Erasmus was never slow to write what monarchs wanted to hear. And many of those monarchs then turned away from hearkening to Erasmus, towards the Protestants, who, as we will discover next time, brought a new cacophony to the Western Church. Thank you.
0: Thank you very much indeed. Uh, we'll take a break of two to three minutes to allow people to, who have to leave now to slip out and then uh, hope have uh, about ten minutes of questions. Um, can I ask a question, please, in connection with the enforced celibacy, the enforced um, celibacy of the clergy, uh, with two aspects. First of all, what was the role of men and women who were not ordained in the medieval church? And secondly, how did, they enf- how did the
1: church enforce celibacy upon members of the clergy who were married? When you say what was the role of men and women who were not ordained in the Western Church, do you mean ordinary lay folk? Laying. Well, uh, their role is to worship, and the church in return uh, gives them access through the intercession of the Mass and the, the, the forgiveness of sins in the confession in the confessional, uh, at least from 1215. Uh, they do have to pay for the thing. So they have various functions, but uh, those functions do not include, obviously, sacramentals, but increasingly the, they are not encouraged to think uh, about contemplation. Many do, and some, who I didn't mention, uh, became great exponents of that. I, mean, think, I think of St. Bridget of Sweden, for instance, Mother Julian, Marjorie Kemp, Interesting how many, again, women uh, survive, uh, and uh, it's it's women from the upper orders of society who generally get away with it. So there are ways in which the uh, boundaries are uh, blurred in that respect. And your second question, sorry, you have to remind me now, was...
0: How how did the authorities in the church enforce...
1: How did they enforce... Clerical celibacy. Well, the the simple answer is that they didn't very efficiently. <laughs> uh, although clerical celibacy uh, from the early 12th century is, is declared to be universal, it's not really until the Counter Reformation where it becomes universal, and there it really does become universal. It's one of the great effects of the Tridentine reforms, is that from then on, uh, secular clergy, clergy who aren't monks, really are. Uh, bound to celibacy, and the secret of it has been to persuade the laity that that should be so. So the laity from then on are a series of constant watch, watchmen over the clergy, but before the Reformation it's quite clear that most of the laity don't care uh, if their clergy are not observing the celibacy rules, uh, and, and there is a very considerable body of clerical opposition to clerical celibacy as late as 1200. Uh, there there is a literature of uh, opposing clerical celibacy among the clergy. And um, I have to say that England, as opposed to Scotland, uh, did fairly well sort out universal clerical celibacy during the Middle Ages. One of the very few parts of Europe which did, because England was an unusually well-regulated bit of the Western Church. But come to Scotland, go to Wales, uh, go to Switzerland, and there you're seeing clerical concubinage as pretty well universal. Clergy have l- women and very often there are taxes levied by the bishops on those women or on the clergy uh, which is a nice source of revenue so you don't want to press this too <laughs> much. I mean, You think of Cardinal Beaton who really was living as a layperson and, and very respectably living as a layperson with uh, a lady who was not his wife but bore him a series of children uh, with, with the, the most Without the slightest frisson from the church at the time, it was the Protestants who started sneering at it, because they, of course, said, "Well, this is this is hypocrisy." But uh, it, the, the imposition of clerical celibacy is very much a Tridentine thing, and, and I think has profound consequences for the, the Roman Catholic Church after the, the Counter Reformation. Uh, You pointed to various instances of Islam, as it were, giving a lead to movements in the Christian church. Uh, How was that affected by the Crusades, and did it
0: continue after that?
1: Well, it was encouraged by the Crusades, uh, simply because of the the cultural interaction. Uh, The the, the thing about iconophobia isn't, uh, it's a result of uh, uh, Muslim uh, incursions onto Christianity, and, uh, and hence... Uh, it, it's Spain, it's Byzantium that uh, Christian, in, in which Christians show iconophobia. They they pick up up at both ends of the attack, but the Crusades. I mean, the, the great thing is about the Crusades is it brings this flood of classical literature westwards, and that's why the West has to imitate Islamic universities, because the Islamic universities are set up in order to deal with the same material, Aristotle, etc., and so they're copied. First in Italy and then and then further out. Uh, so they're not always fighting, is the answer in the Crusades. I mean, it does open a, a lot of cultural gates through. And uh, then beyond the Crusades, the, the Ottoman conquests of former Byzantium are crucial because their Christians are suddenly now subjects. And they've got to consider uh, this remarkable set of spiritual athletes, the Sufis. I think, uh, in my first lecture, I, I, I touched briefly on the puzzle of why hesychasm did not become a physical thing, like the whirling dervishes. And I think the answer is the Ottomans just don't think that's a good idea for Christians to be uh, so demonstrative. And in, in the same way, they stop Christian, Christians ringing bells, because why should Christians have noise? Noise is hegemonic, and noise should be a monopoly of, the, of Islam. So it's something of the same thing, I think.
0: Firstly, as a gloss on your first reply, and I say that in post time Italy they had huge difficulties imposing uh, chemical celibacy in any middle of concubines. Yeah. But to, to the, the question I have, where would you put fully blamed confraternities in the sort of history of reactions
1: yeah. in the hybrid A very good point, and I think that's what's missing from my answer about the role of the laity. Uh, You you can hardly imagine late medieval uh, Western devotion without the guild, without the confraternity. It really is basic. I think particularly in Northern Europe, because Northern Europe is so purgatory fixated. The the, the Southern Mediterranean part of the medieval Latin church is not. It's clearly a divide. Uh, It's Germany, it's Scandinavia, it's England, Scotland, where purgatory is a real concern, and therefore you've got to do a lot about it, and hence the confraternity, hence the guild. They really are the uh, backbone of the medieval uh, lay devotional system. Uh, I think one proof of that is that confraternities or guilds are virtually never, I think I, I might almost go as far as saying never, heretical. They are never the center of any movement of dissent in the medieval Western church. They're so integrated as part of the parish system Uh, So yes, we've really got to notice them, but I think only in the North. And and again, one of the effects of the Counter-Reformation is to bring this purgatory-centered, confraternity-centered devotion into the Mediterranean, where it had not been a major factor uh, before the mid-16th century. And the ironical result is that when Eamon Duffy is describing 1520s England, he is equally well describing 1670s Italy, or 1670s Spain, whereas it wouldn't have been uh, a carbon copy in the 1520s. Two different sorts of worlds.
0: I think we have time for
1: two more questions, perhaps one here. <laughs> the near, the nearer one there. Uh. <coughs>
0: Um, In the Byzantine church before the introduction of the iconostasis, was there a physical barrier between the clergy and the lay people? You know, like the medieval rude screens in the western church.
1: Um, There's a low low screen, um, just a bit like a communion rail, and it it, it gets steadily higher. That's really the origins of the iconostasis. It's the building a framework so you can hang icons on it, and you start with the Sort of knee level, and then you, you, you move upwards. So, was it a sort
0: of barrier between the two? Or just well, level?
1: not so much. Uh, you, you might say that the, the barrier in the East tends to enclose the altar alone. In other words, it's not actually a physical separation between clergy and laity, it's a separation between everybody and the sacred place. Uh, And so that low barrier is what grows, uh, whereas there may also be a low screen around the choir and clergy in the east and west, and that is what grows in the west. So if you think about the layout of a medieval cathedral, that choir box in which the clergy sing, that's what's grown from these two possible screens, these two possible little rail things. It's that which grown, and I think that may be another factor here. That uh, uh, the, w- w- which I think is probably a symptom of the different sorts of clericalisms that you're getting in West and East. Final question. <coughs>
0: Um, just at the end of your lecture, you referred to the fact that Erasmus had little interest in the Kabbalistic tradition. Hmm. Now, to what extent was that tradition influential in the period that you were talking about? You alluded to the Sufi tradition as having an influence on the uh, the Christian mystical tradition. How far were people as, were taking the, the, the Kabbalistic tradition seriously into their life, even if
1: Erasmus himself didn't? hardly known before the 15th century. It's part of the the humanist rediscovery of um, ancient wisdom. And it tremendously excited certain humanists. But it just doesn't light up um, Erasmus, partly because he is extremely anti-Semitic, and he regards it as Jewish nonsense. So uh, it, it just doesn't light up for him at all. And that's the the, the humanist movement in the the fifteenth sixteenth century. Really, is split down the middle on this. For some people, they think this is the the beginning of new knowledge. It's it's a way forward for secret uh, wisdom which has been lost. And for others, like Erasmus, no, it's a load of old nonsense. And you should look at the fathers, look at the mainstream philosophers, and, and and that's the way forward.
0: Thank you. I'm afraid we are out of time for this (coughs) evening, so uh, let me, in in closing, invite you to join me in thanking Professor McCullough.
1: (laughs) This production is brought to you by the University of Edinburgh.